I'm Tracy Brady. I'm Senior Vice President of Communications at Cureleaf, and I'm proud to work in cannabis because it was a medicine first, and it's been used for thousands of years, and we all need to do our part to erase the stigma. everybody and welcome back to another episode of the proud to work in cannabis podcast sorry we missed everybody last week was taking one week off from the podcast but we are back for the rest of the summer and i'm super excited for this episode i have tracy brady who is the senior vice president of global communications at cureleaf one of our longest standing clients and tracy and i got the chance to meet each other at MJ BizCon last year, but we kind of met in passing. So I'm really excited to actually spend time here getting to know you better. So Tracy, thank you for joining me today. Of course, I'm happy to be here. And um, you were very busy networking, as was I. But So it's nice to sit down and spend a little bit more time together. It's good to see you. And we have to do it in person with our with our mutual great friend, Jennifer Bedford as well. Yes, shout out to Jennifer Bedford everybody's favorite recruiter. Jennifer Bedford is one of the executive recruiters here at Vanks who is friends with Tracy and uh, we share a love for Jen. So Tracy, before I get into Cureleaf and what it's like being in charge of um, communications at the largest publicly traded cannabis company, I would love for you to walk us through your career before going into the cannabis industry and uh what you were doing before you decided to, to go into the cannabis space? Sure. Um, I spent about 10 years in marketing and advertising. Um, and before that was in the entertainment business. So I actually started my career in New York, um, working for small independent film companies, documentary film companies, um, little company getting started back then called Miramax. Uh, we had clients <laughs> at Miramax. And um, from there, I, um, I went out to LA and spent several years working for Turner Broadcasting and um, doing television publicity for shows and helped launch the Cartoon Network way back then. And when I moved back to the Boston area, which is where I'm originally from, I'm from New England, um, I realized very quickly that there wasn't a ton of entertainment companies around. There were no movie studios in Boston, but there were a lot of great ad agencies. And Boston is such a great town for, for education, for healthcare, for finance. Um, biotech um, and ad, ad agencies. So I worked at three really great ones, Modernista, which is sadly no longer around, um, Arnold Worldwide, which is still around, and Hill Holiday, which is a sort of a legendary Boston agency. And I really cut my teeth there on clients like Bank of America, Dunkin' Donuts, Cadillac, um, Planet Fitness, John Hancock, Liberty Mutual. So it was a lot of fun. And um, it's really all about storytelling, you know, whether you're telling the stories of a director or um, an actress or um, a movie or documentaries. When I worked at Turner, I was fortunate enough to work with people like Jacques Cousteau and David Attenborough. I met Hank Aaron on a baseball documentary. Um, it's all about storytelling. It's all about connecting with the audience through personal stories and stories that are compelling and meaningful um, and rich in the human experience. So you can do that with brands, you can do that with executives, you can do that with cannabis, uh, right? So after about eight years at Hill Holiday, um, I noticed that this company called Cureleaf was looking for somebody to run communications. And it's funny because people like to say we're the biggest, we're the biggest, but we really do operate like a startup and, and they did back then. And I went in 
And I thought to myself, you know, this is my, my common joke. I always say like, I missed out on e-com. I missed out on web 2.0. I missed out on crypto. Well, here comes cannabis. That's the next big, exciting thing, you know, and I have a little bit of experience with cannabis and I have a lot of experience telling stories um, and making things that people don't understand cool and interesting and worth understanding. So I jumped at the chance and that was about three and a half years ago. Cannabis time. It's, I guess, a decade, right? You say cannabis time. <laughs> cannabis time. And, yeah. and I think that uh, I mentioned to you before we got onto this call that I did an internship at Jack Morton, which was a, yeah. sounds like a sister company to Hill Holiday. And it was one of the yeah, best. Yeah, they do. Yeah. One of the best experiences that I've ever had. And I think anybody that works in that fast paced agency environment where you have to deliver for your customers and you have to provide them with exceptional an exceptional experience i feel like it sets you up to really go and do anything i mean to work there for eight years that that's super impressive yeah it was a lot of fun i mean you got to do everything from you know your standard press release talking about a client win to you know a client bringing you on board um to go to can with them at can the the can lion international festival of creativity is sort of the the Cannes um, movie festival for the advertising industry. So I, I did everything from go there with clients and put them on panels to talk about um, to talk about everything from you know marketing to diversity to um, the competitive landscape. And then you also have you know the crisis that come up for clients. We had a client, Party City, that um, we made some work for them promoting a product and which long story, but it inadvertently offended uh, the the gluten free crowd because it was a, some sort of joke about snacks during the Super Bowl. And I never saw the cut before it went on television. Now, if they had shown me the cut, I would have said, someone's gonna get upset about that. Um, and somebody did. All the moms in America who are parents of celiac disease children got upset. So we ended up you know, apologizing, of course, as you do in any crisis, taking, you know, taking uh, responsibility and accountability for what went wrong. But then we ended up, um, working on a, an educational and advocacy campaign for celiac disease, which was an amazing, amazing thing. And the creatives had a really great time understanding and learning about what it's like to, to have celiac disease. And, you know, I'm going off into this long-winded story, but the point is any crisis can turn into a moment of creative storytelling for the good. And, um, and we did a lot of that in advertising because we had a lot of really, really great, interesting clients at Hill Holiday. And Hill Holiday is a very soft spot in my heart for Hill Holiday. We spent many years there. Yeah, I was mentioning as my my best friend, we were juniors going into our senior year. She interned there and I interned at Jack Morton. So what a what a fun summer and she's just like spoke so highly of it. I want to I want to double click in a minute on crisis communications because a lot of companies don't have a person like you in-house that knows how to manage when there's a crisis. So I want to get into that. So I'm putting that into a sandbox. But before I go there, okay. I want to talk to you about okay, so you decide that you do not want to miss the cannabis wave. And so you joined Cureleaf three and a half years ago. What is it like on day one and what do you walk into? So <laughs> it's funny because I think the first week there were three crises, not, none of our own making, I should say. Um, the week I started was when the vape crisis hit mm. Massachusetts. Um, and you know, Jewel was getting in a bunch of trouble. I don't, I don't know if it was specifically Jewel, but there was there was a vape crisis, and and people were getting sick, and a lot of people were blaming the cannabis industry, and so we had to issue statements 
Um, we had to get on the phone with regulators and we had to test our products. We went through a lot of testing to make sure that our products were safe and they didn't have the vitamin E acetate. Um, and then it turned out that I think it was something like 90 or 95% of the problematic vapes were from um, the illicit market and they were not from the, the regulated market. Um, so there was that. And then I think we also had, we were opening um, a dispensary that week and opening in a state. And that was before I realized that every state has different regulations and different words you can use. You know, you can't, you couldn't launch a gummy in New York then. You had to call it a sublingual gel tablet. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I was like, wow, that's a PR challenge right there. Um, so there was like three press releases and three different things going on. Not to mention it was uh, a month before we closed on the select acquisition. Mm -hmm. So, which I had read about and was one of the main reasons I wanted to come to the company, knowing they had acquired select and grassroots and they were poised to, you know, have this portfolio of amazing brands and really be the biggest player in the space. So there was a lot of integration work, um, which I hadn't done before. Nobody knew it then, but I hadn't done, you know, integrating two companies. Um, and so that was a whole internal communications exercise that I had to, I had to navigate. And then there was some sort of financing. There was some sort of press release about restructuring a debt deal. Again, I hadn't had any IR experience. There were some financial terms I had never heard of. And, um, you know, I just said this in another interview, rather than fake it, I just said to the CEO, I, I don't, I don't know what that means. And he goes, oh, don't worry about it. One year ago, I didn't know what was, that was. Was Joe the C? Who is this? Yeah, Joe Lasardi. He, uh, Joe Lasardi hired me when I came in. What we're doing? Um, yeah. So the first week, and, and I was like drinking from a fire hose, you know, getting up at crazy hours to just make sure I hadn't missed anything. And uh, literally, the first week I came home, and I said to my husband, "I don't, I don't know if I can do this. This is crazy. This industry, like, it's so fast. There's so much going on." He's like, "Yeah, but you were too comfortable before." And so, yeah. Now, what, how big was, at the time that you joined three and a half years ago, so at that time, Cureleaf was already public, right? Yeah, they had um, gone public um, before I got, before I got there, I think in, or in, in 2018, I think, the year right. before. Um, and, and how big was the team approximately, and how big was your team? My team was me. There, there was no team. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. We had a head of marketing who was doing like four jobs, including, you know, PR and comms. And we had a bunch of agencies, um, but we, they, had no one, they had nobody running PR and comms. So that was really exciting to come in and, and build the team from the ground up um, to sort of take stock in the agencies and figure out like which agencies were working, what did we need, you know, where was the company going growth-wise, which states were going to become battleground states, um, you know, what are the stories that we wanted to tell and who are the partners that can help us tell those stories? Uh, we were trying to build out a CSR program at the time. So that was going to be, you know, a nice, a nice way for us to tell positive stories about interacting with the communities where we set up shop. And so I came in and, um, I think it took me a while to, I, I actually acquired two people from the select acquisition. So there were three of us for a time, but then as the company kept growing, I quickly realized I, I needed someone to help with internal comms, um, because that's a big part of it. You know, if your own people are not your brand ambassadors, you can't expect to build brand ambassadors outside the company. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. So you have your internal, you have, I think, because I think that's a really great point, and I think it's often overlooked. So in the beginning, of course, you were doing everything, and then you brought in someone else. How do you, how, how, how do you create, if, if I'm a business owner, and we're growing quickly, and we want to have an internal communication strategy, especially as you guys have employees across so many states in so many different business 
units, right? Who all do different things, right? You have who all do different yeah. things. You have entry level people that some maybe this is their first job. How do you do it? Well, you first have to convince people of the need. Um, you know, as you said, there's not a lot of belief like, hey, uh, we want to be a profitable company. Let's build out a strategic internal communications plan, right? That's not really the first thing they think of. Um, but talent has become a hot button, as you know, as you well know, recently. And you need to hang on to good talent. You need to find, you need to recruit and retain good talent. And one of the ways you do that is build culture. Um, I'm lucky to have a really great chief people officer as a partner now. She was not there when I started um, two year, three years ago. But Tania Rivers is our chief people officer. And she loves to say, you can't build culture from behind a desk. You've got to get out there and meet people and talk to them and tell their stories. And, and that's one of the things we've tried to do. So, you know, in convincing a company that they need a strong internal communication strategy, you've got to connect it to the business, right? Which makes sense. Any CEO has got to, got to understand that this is relevant to the business. When you have happy, productive employees who believe in what they're doing and who believe that they're cared about and seen and heard, they're going to do a better job for you. Um, you know that from being a manager. Um, and it, it goes all the way up and, and all the way down the, the line. So I think that that's really important. And, you know, Attracting and retaining talent is a crucial, crucial piece of any successful company's journey. Um, and you got to do whatever you need to do to, to hang on to that talent and to make them feel heard and respected and, uh, you know, respect their career path and their growth aspirations. And one of the ways to do that is to have a robust internal comm strategy where you're, you're building programs that recognize people. You're building training and development platforms for growth. We work very closely. My team works very closely with people and culture used to be called HR, but now it's people and culture, uh, because that is a more apt name for it. So we work very closely with that department. We work very closely with our IT department. One example I'll give you is when I first started, I said, well, I've got to do a weekly newsletter so people know I'm here and what I'm doing. And, and, and my first <laughs> weekly newsletter, I'm not incredibly skilled at technology. I'm a really good writer, but I, I'm not good with technology. So I would do a list of all the press hits I got this week, you know, and just say, hey, everybody, this is what we generated this week in the cannabis trades. This is what we generated in business press. Check this out. And it was literally like a list of links. Um, today, that newsletter is called Friday Features, and it's a giant photo-driven newsletter featuring 95% of it is about our team members, right? What they're doing, pictures of them out in the field, celebrating seasonal moments like Pride or Juneteenth or 420. Um, and like in the beginning is my little section of all the great press hits I got. <laughs> so it's become a tool for our people and for team members. And it grew. And once I hired Maxwell, who is my amazing internal comms director, who ran internal comms at, at another company, a very, um, very sort of corporate military industrial company. Um, he brought in the structure that we really needed. So he's like, you know, you've, you've got to do the email this way. You've got to include this. You've got to send a... Um, You've got to engage the population by really making the intranet robust. That's another thing that we did when I first came on board is we built an intranet. And, you know, when I was first running it, it was like, click here for HR, click here to find out what our travel policy is. And now the leaf, which I'm glad we named it the leaf, is a really robust resource for all of our employees with everything from nominating a team member to be most valuable player to our culture champs that we put up there. Um, all our DEI initiatives, um, recruiting initiatives. It's just a, a really great resource for all of um, team members. And Max also um, built out a Yammer page for us so that employees could have their own sort of internet that was, that was less corporate where they share 
you know, like someone made a yard sale page and someone made a Cura Pets, you know, share pictures of their pets. So all of those tools help people feel like they're part of something bigger, part of a community that sees them and hears them and that they feel like they have a voice. Um, it's not perfect, you know, any company with 5,000 people, you're always gonna have challenges. Um, but, you know, we, we created a feedback loop using email and, and using the leaf and reporting processes and we're doing engagement surveys with our, you know, people and culture is, is doing engagement surveys, employee engagement surveys. So um, it's really collaborating with the, the HR or people and culture teams and IT to use technology, especially now when people are remote, to, to reach people and, and make sure they understand that they have a way to be heard and seen at the company besides what they do every day. I, I love the newsletter idea of taking photos of folks in the field at in this state. And I was actually just thinking, you know, because part of our business is our gigs business where we send you all gigs employees, that, but they work for us. And I've been trying to think about there's so many of them, thousands. How do we build culture around all the gig workers so that they can see what another Vanks gig worker is doing at uh, another Curly facility in another state? And so, like, I just, I just got a bazillion and one ideas from what you just said, and hopefully other people do because I feel like no one really thinks about comms as internal. Like when we think about our newsletter, we do our newsletter to our customers, not to our right. own team and our own gig workers. So, like. That's oh, you've got to do one for your own such team. Such a great idea. Yeah. And what I always like to say is like comms is many, you can have a lot of messages or you can have one message, but you can have one message and one story that has to be delivered to a variety of audiences, right? So this is another like, you know, one of the hard things about comms is what's great news for investors is not necessarily great news for employees and vice versa, right? Investors want to see, um, you know, margin improvement. They want to see um, savings on, on the labor workforce, Um and, you know, employees want everybody to be happy and grow and the company <laughs> makes money and everybody makes a lot of money, you know, <laughs> so it's it's difficult sometimes um, to, to figure out how to tell the story or the message to one audience um, and tell it to another audience in a different way that's not going to like the news, but always be truthful. And and that's another great point, because even thinking about myself, we, we have investors and I used to do letters where I would say, like, dear team plus investors and like do my whole thing. And it's like, yeah, it, you can't it, do I'm that. like, well, this is so interesting. <laughs> One group of people is responding so happy and the other group of people is responding so not happy. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's that, that's another great point for anybody listening out there with investors and team members, things that make your investors happy may not make your team happy and vice versa. Like, you know, like, uh, Tracy, what you were just telling me about the yard sale and pet pictures. I don't know if investors care about, uh, the pet pictures. No, they don't. <laughs> they don't. But for your, for your gig workers, you should really, if you haven't already build them an intranet or a social media site that you create just for them. Um, and it doesn't have to be super, um, cost prohibitive either. And it's just a community and they can share ideas. They can share resources. If somebody's gig is ending, they can say, Hey, I'm leaving this gig. I'm looking for another one. You know, it's just like any other professional network, but they're, you know, they're bound by a common interest and a, and a, and a, a common experience of working for Vangst and, and working in the cannabis industry. So, yeah, you should definitely, that community is very valuable. It, Keep them a community. Andrew Carmer, our, our VP of engineering, if you're listening, we're launching, <laughs> we're, we actually do have an intranet and we do have a community feed, but we're going to really start promoting it. Um, so, so that's a, that's a great tip and I hope everybody out there listening. Okay. So. The thing that I wanted to go back to, and we've talked about it now a little bit, is the crisis communication and like a tactical playbook. So let's just assume that 
like exactly what you just said. Um, you you're at Party City, and you know, for excuse, pardon my French, but shit hits the fan. So yeah, a lot of companies have that happen, and they don't have somebody like Tracy there. Imagine that someone's a small business, a crisis happens. There's not a communications person. What do you do? What's the playbook here? So the playbook is really, um, it's, it's four really important things. One, um, find out what went wrong before you admit, before you apologize, before you pay anybody, get the facts. And a lot of times, um, we're moving so quickly and you know, you're in that panic mode in the fire drill and you don't stop and take a breath and go, okay, what really happened here? Um, so find out what happened. Um, second, apologize if you were in the wrong, which most of the time, if it's a crisis, you're either in the wrong or you know someone was in the wrong or you know you, you have to um, take accountability. So you apologize. We're sorry that this happened. You know, We're sorry that we made a commercial that offends um, people who have celiac disease. It was not intentional. Um, we're doing everything we can to make it right. <clears throat> um, third, explain why it happened, how it happened. And that's when you get into, you know, there may be legal issues, you know, if it's a crisis where there's an employee, uh, there's some sort of, you know, lawsuit or something, you, you can only say so much, um, but acknowledge and explain why it happened. Um, and then finally, what you're going to do to fix it to make sure it doesn't happen again. Um, so those are kind of the, the four basic, uh, you know, rules of any crisis comms. And then I would also say it's important to use your partners. So like Curaleaf, you know, I'm sure everybody knows we've had we've had our share of of PR crisis and things like that. Whether it's you know people thinking we're a Russian company, or you know, like any company, we have a product recall. Um, and the one thing I will say that I that I would like to say is that this sort of narrative that um, people who work for MSOs and giant companies get up in the morning like rubbing our hands together and cackling like, "Ooh, how can we like harm customers and rip off shareholders and make sure nobody else makes a good business in cannabis?" It's just wrong. Like we don't get up every day and say that. We want to be a good company that sells quality products and service to patients and consumers. And if we don't do that, we're not going to make money, right? Because we live in America. This is a capitalistic democratic society. We're a business. We want to make money, but we want our people to be happy. We want our customers to be happy. We want to be proud of the products and the services that we sell. And so, you know, this this sort of narrative that if you're corporate instead of um, you know, small homegrown, you're just evil is it, just wrong. And I think it's destructive and detrimental to the whole industry. Yeah. What's, that's a great point. I don't, I don't know what's up with that. I mean, what, what is your take on why there is these, these haters out there? Well, I think it happens in any industry, you know, I mean, you've got people who, who love Budweiser and people who think Budweiser is evil and awful. And they only drink, you know, the craft home brew that they make 12 bottles a year and Portland or something, right? <laughs> so there's a lot of anti-corporate sentiment, which I understand. In our industry, you have to understand the history of the plant right. and the legacy market and the role the legacy market played in, in making cannabis become legal and, and accepted. Um, but I think that a lot of the larger companies and the MSOs in particular, you know, they have a responsibility and also um, an opportunity to, to help other players and small businesses and small entrepreneurs grow. And I think, you know, we, we've tried to do that as much as possible with some of our Rooted in Good initiatives and our partners. Um, and I think there's room for everybody in the market. Um, you're never going to have just the big players. You're never going to have just the small independent players. 
And I think there's there's room for businesses of every size and brands of, of every type. Um, I agree with you. And, and it, look, Tracy, you all employ five, did you say 5,000 people? Yeah, that includes international because we have an international company as well. I mean, we that's international, Curate Leaf International. Yep. 5,000 people who have the <coughs> opportunity to work in the cannabis industry and grow from within and be part of your internal uh, community. I mean, that that's really incredible. And the fact that the cannabis industry has has created those 5,000 jobs and actually 425,000 jobs is something that everybody in the cannabis industry should be proud of. And I fully believe that there's opportunities for big businesses and small businesses in a space for everyone to grow and do incredibly well in the space. Well, that's the hope, right? And, and the other thing that people often forget is when you're a large MSO, in operating in multiple states, you're paying a lot of taxes, a lot of taxes. And those taxes go to the infrastructure and the economies of those cities and towns in those states. And they go to things like education and, and fire and police departments. And and I think, you know, the, the tax revenue that the cannabis industry is generating right now is something that's often overlooked. Um, you know, and that's something that the, the illicit market that isn't and has never participated in for obvious reasons. But, you know, I, yeah, I just think that, you know, anti-corporate, evil corporate cannabis companies is, is just a narrative that's just getting a little tired. Um, it's a growing burgeoning industry. And, you know, people often like to say, oh, it's, you know, the green rush. It's everybody jumping in. Um, but there's room for everybody. And there's there's obviously obviously a bright future ahead for the entire industry if we could just get Washington to move, right? <laughs> yeah. Can you talk to me about, on that note, the role that comms plays and something that I've been thinking about is the need for the industry to have a succinct message in Washington. I feel like communications as an entire industry, not as one business, but as an industry is important to get Washington to move. What role do you think communication plays in Washington at this moment in time right now? Well, I think one of the great things that's happened in the last couple of years is the formation of the USCC, the U.S. Cannabis Council, um, because the industry does need to speak with one voice. It's really important. I mean, everybody has, obviously, every business has its own agenda and its own specific strategic growth priorities. But, you know, in Washington, if you don't speak with, with one voice and, and you don't spend money on lobbying, you're very often not heard, you know, compared to other industries that are. So our, our team has worked pretty closely with USCC and, and we continue to do so. We, we helped them start the Buy Legal campaign, um, which was an initiative <clears throat> basically just encouraging people and educating people the benefits of buying legal, not just, you know, supporting a growing industry, but as we said before, that supporting tax revenue and jobs that come with the, the legal industry and supporting safely regulated tested products. Um, so the comms team helped, you know, we created a website and we helped them write the copy and we made some hats and t-shirts and passed them out at MJ BizCon. So those sort of grassroots kind of advocacy things help. I was fortunate, again, something I hadn't done in my previous careers, um, to go to DC with our government relations team and actually meet lawmakers and sit in on meetings where we discussed the goals. Um, and, and I never realized how difficult it is to get a, a bill introduced and passed and, and what goes into that. And so traveling to DC with, with my GR team has been incredibly eye-opening and really educational um, and really interesting um, in seeing how our government works or, you know, as it were, doesn't work sometimes. <laughs> I was just there doing a similar trip, and I've gone. This was my seventh year in a row going. Wow! And this year, what you're a pro now. Yeah. So I've, 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 similar to you, the first time I went, I was like, kind of like mind, mind blown how it works. And 
you know, the first time I was mostly meeting with the staffers, you know, I wasn't meeting with the actual representative, but as the years have gone by, it seems like the representatives themselves are more interested to meet. And, you know, the big sticking point in my last trip is we do this jobs report where we show how many jobs are in each state in the job growth or in the last year lack thereof. So I got really nice um, copies printed and I gave the jobs report to all the representatives and actually a couple staffers um, followed up with me on like additional uh, questions about jobs in their specific state. So next time you go, let me know and I'll send you a bunch of copies of the bank's jobs report because you can literally go in and, you know, we were meeting with someone from, we actually met with someone from Missouri and that was the number one job created, you know, that was the number one state where cannabis jobs were created last year. It increased by over 200%. And I showed like, look at how many jobs are created in your state and people just were like eating that up. So it's interesting, like the sticking points and to your point around like tax revenue, that's obviously an interesting point to them. Um, and jobs, like we are in, we are not in the world's easiest financial times right now. And we're having an industry that is bringing real jobs. Curaleaf created 5,000 jobs in states all across, you know, the country that are great paying benefits it's just like a no brainer when you sit there with this jobs report. So you got to bring the jobs report next time. That sounds good. We definitely will. We definitely will. So, so switching gears a little bit, another, another topic that I like to talk about for people that were outside of the industry that then move into the industry. I know that you're a mom and (laughs) you, you, and at some point you decided to sit down with your husband and your kids and talk about transitioning into the cannabis industry. Can you talk to us about that conversation and how it went and how the rest of your friends and um, family responded. Sure. Yeah. Um, It's amazing what's changed in three years, you know, three and a half years ago when I was thinking about taking the job and leaving Hill Holiday, um, there were sort of two kinds of people. Uh, The more entrepreneurial folk were like, that's so exciting. That's amazing. You should jump into that industry. And then the more conservative people were like, I don't know, you'll never get another job anywhere else again if you go work in weed. It was really kind of crazy. Um, and, and for the first few months, I, you know, I joined at an interesting time for my kids because they were in middle school. And I don't know if you have kids or how old they are, but it's just a really tough time. None yet, but I, but I hope so. Yeah. So middle school is like you're, you're still a kid, but you're, you got teenagerhood creeping around the corner. And sometimes you want to be a kid and sometimes you want to be a cool teenager. And um, they start to become a little less respectful of their parents and their parents, you know, judgment and decisions. So they obviously, I think, um, I think my son, let's see, three years ago. Yeah, he was in sixth grade. So I didn't, it it was touchy because I didn't want to tell a lot of his um, friends' parents who were my friends. You know, you have a parent group. You're like automatically friends with all your kids' friends' parents. And some of them I felt I could tell and they were excited and happy for me. But some of them, um, including a couple who were doctors, I, I really kind of didn't didn't say anything for a while because I wasn't sure if there would be, you know, judgment. And I, I didn't want them to think, oh, God, she works in the marijuana business. My kid can't play with her kid anymore. Um, and I did sit down and, and, and talk to my family. And my husband's been a longtime um, cannabis enthusiast, and he's he's pretty much a cannabis snob. Um, he'd grown his own for a long time. Um, so we talked about it and he said, okay, well, this is exciting and, and cool. And if this is what you want to do, then, you know, go for it. Um, whenever I take a new job, he says, do you want to do this? And I said, well, yeah, I do want to do it. Um, it was scary to leave advertising and Hell Holiday. But 
one of the funniest things is the, one, the first week I went on a tour of a cultivation facility, which was mind blowing. You know, for the first time you do that, you're like, okay, this is really a real industry and there's all these people working and they're all wearing like surgical scrubs and taking their jobs very, very seriously. And people's idea when you tell them you work for a cannabis company is like, oh, is everybody stoned at work? Like, no, <laughs> no, people be take their be, jobs. I know, I know. <laughs> you know, um, very seriously. So we came home and obviously when you spent all day in, um, you know, a, a 5,000 square foot or 10,000 square foot grow facility, you smell like weed and your car smells like weed. And my kids were like, mom, your car smells like a skunk. It's gross, you know? And now my kids are in high school and um, they, it's funny, like I, it used to be like, I was a cool mom because I worked in cannabis and now they're like embarrassed, you know, like, well, cause they're embarrassed by everything right, they do. Right, right. Um, because they're teenagers, right? So it was cool when they were younger and, and now they're like, yeah, my, my mom works at agriculture. Oh, they say my mom works at agriculture. <laughs> Wait, so I want to, so did you eventually tell the rest of the parents or is it still kind of on the DL? I did. Oh yeah. So I wanted to get back to that. So. I went from like being sort of cagey about it to, you know, the more I was in the industry and the more patients I met and the more anecdotal evidence I heard, that's one of the most frustrating things. It's like, because there's no federal money for uh, real clinical research, it's not proven, right? That, that um, cannabis is good for arthritis or for autism or for glaucoma or for sleeplessness or anxiety or PTSD or depression. But you have these, we had, you know, hundreds of patient anecdotes and personal stories that, um, you know, because of FDA rules, we couldn't actually, one of the first things I want to do is put these stories out on our website. And they're like, no, did you hear about the FDA? Fine. Like we can't make any medical claims. I'm like, but we're not making the claims. Like our patients are making the claims. Like, nope, you can't do that. So the more I heard about our patient stories and, and of the plant actually serving as a medicine and helping people, I sort of got a little bit, you know, defensive and defiant when um, people would say, oh, you work in cannabis. Oh, well, you know, um, there's no medical proof. I'm like, well, you know, there's only hundreds of thousands of um, personal anecdotes from patients. Yeah, there's no federally subsidized research, probably has something to do with the pharmaceutical industry, but you're a doctor, so you know that, you know, and then I would sort of go off. And, and I mean, um, that's the whole, and that's the whole point of this podcast, the proud to work in cannabis podcast. And so I feel like that's such a cool story of like the deeper in you got, the more you went from being, the more you went from not wanting to share it with friends' parents to being so excited and wanting to brag about it and and actually if, get into a debate with somebody about it. And like, that's the beauty of this, you know, proud to work in cannabis. I mean, you're a perfect example of that. Someone who went from being, I don't know if I want to tell my kids' parents because I don't know if the, the, those parents will let their kids play with my kids to now like, hey, you have a problem, come debate me on it. Right, and now a lot of um, people that I was worried about, like their kids are now in college and need internships and a couple of them have reached out to me and said, hey, uh, is CureLeaf hiring? And can my son get into the industry? So, Oh my God. Um, but I will say, I do want to say one thing about the kids though. Uh, one thing that I make very clear and I tell my kids all the time is, um, this is an age-gated drug. This is a controlled substance. It is a drug and um, you're not using it until you're of age, 21, just like alcohol. So, um, you know, I, I don't condone children or teenagers using cannabis. I know that it happens. Obviously, I was a teenager once, but I don't condone that with my own kids. And I tell them that. And I do tell them if you're in situations where you're using, all I ask is that you make sure it's uh, tested and regulated and someone didn't get it somewhere where they didn't know where it comes from. Oh, and because I mean, that's when you get into trouble. I think it's the same for alcohol, right? I mean, parents right. know that their kids are at some point in time 
probably going to try alcohol before they're 21. And I remember my parents said, do it at someone's house that we trust and do not operate any motor vehicle. You know, like what can you, it's the same thing here. I agree. The, the, the really scary difference, though, is that there's no moonshine anymore. Teenagers aren't going like and buying like illegal moonshine that somebody made in their bathtub um, with chemicals. Um, and sometimes, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there where you don't know what's in it um, and it can be dangerous. Um, and we saw that with the vape crisis. So, yeah, I, I'm a strong proponent of age gating and I would never condone underage use of any drug. Exactly. And I think that that's the clear message. And I also think that, you know, for other parents, that 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 has to be the message. And I'm sure your your kids, you know, your your kids like their their friends' parents, you know, feel feel the same. Yeah. And the other thing is, I don't I don't hide our products from my kids. I mean, I don't let them use the products or have access to them. But if my if I'm taking a gummy or my husband's, you know, smoking, we don't hide it from them like it's something shameful anymore. Like my son teases my husband, like, really, Dad. It's not even five o'clock. Um, so it's accepted. <laughs> yeah, and I just think that's how the world is. Like, I just think that's the direction that yeah. we're going in. Like I, I mentioned, I don't I don't have um, kids yet. I'm getting married this summer. So maybe in the coming oh, years. Oh, congrats. Yeah, thank you. So are you going to do like any products in your gift bags, your bridesmaids gift bags? So actually, um, <laughs> Kelsey Applebaum, who works here at Vangst, we have this kind of like section of the wedding we're getting married on this ranch and there's kind of like this cool like um cabin thing and Kelsey was like I think we should get put our clients products in the cabin so I think we may have a little we may have a (laughs) little something which you know it's it's so funny because similar to you when I started this business a cannabis hiring business uh seven years ago people kind of looked at me like, what the hell are you doing? Uh, like, is there a market for that? <laughs> is there a market for cannabis jobs? What are you going to do? Have people, you know, roll joints and get high all day? I'm like, well, there actually is a joint roller job, but, <laughs> but you know, they're not smoking every single joint that they roll. But anyway, those a lot of those same people, similar to you, have now wanted to get a job through Vangst or wanted their kids to get a job through Vangst or their cousin or their uncle or whoever. And a lot of those people that told me I was going to ruin my career yep. if I go into the cannabis industry are coming to the wedding and I'm sure will be making their way to the uh, Kelsey's Cannabis Cabin. So it's going to be funny. Yeah. And they want you to hire their nephew uh-huh. or their son or yeah. Yeah. It's funny how it comes uh, full circle like that. So we're, we're coming up on our time here, but my, my last question for you is that what, What's the thing that you are most looking forward to as you look ahead? You've been in the industry for three years. What are you looking forward to as you look ahead for your next three and a half years in the cannabis industry? Um, well, honestly, I, it sounds boring, but I'm looking for movement um, from the federal government on safe banking or 280E or federal legalization because I, I'm worried about the industry. I think it's really hard for it to grow and move forward when um, you know there's a lack of institutional investors, companies can't uplist. Um, on major exchanges, and and that affects the industry's ability to grow. And I think that once it does hit one of those milestones and people realize this industry is here to stay, then there will be even more cultural acceptance, right, and more opportunity um, to enjoy cannabis as as any other substance like alcohol has been enjoyed. And, you know, consumption lounges where people who don't want to drink can go and meet a friend and have a coffee and choose to consume. Um, so that's what I'm looking forward to the sort of the next level of, 
of growth for the industry. But um, you know, it's no secret that it's a tough time right now. And I just, I hope that um, a lot of companies can hang in there and, and get through it. You and me, you and me both couldn't agree more. Well, well, Tracy, thank you so much for spending 40 minutes with me today. And I'm very excited. I'll be in Boston this summer. So I'm definitely going to let you oh, know. Please and look me I up. I would love yeah. to hang out in real life. And, and thank you again for definitely everything you do and for being a Vanks customer and just, you know, for really working to move the industry forward. I, I really think you're super inspiring. And I, and I absolutely love this conversation. And I know our viewers probably learned a lot. Like I, I I'm, for people not looking at videos, I literally am holding up all the four steps that I wrote down the four steps that Tracy gave us for when a crisis comes up. <laughs> I can, uh, yeah. You have a crisis, um, Carson, you can just call me. I'll walk you yeah, through it. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, there certainly seems to be never a shortage in the cannabis industry. So thank yeah, you again for definitely. your time today. Thank you so much. It's been awesome. It's been awesome. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Chicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.